This morning you can turn to Mark chapter 2. We'll just start you right off in Mark chapter 2. This morning we're actually even going to be entering chapter 3. So why don't you grab your Bibles and start by opening to Mark chapter 2. Last time we witnessed another encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees. Pharisees, if you remember this group, all about trying to work to achieve their own righteousness. They believed they could earn God's favor, make God recognize them. We made this point, though, that this way of thinking actually characterizes all of these systems or religions of the world. I mean, Muslims, for instance, they pray five times a day. They fast during Ramadan. They give alms and they pilgrimage to Mecca because they think it makes them righteous before God. Mormons pray before good works, go to church, take two-year missions trips because they think it makes them righteous before God. Buddhists even meditate, recite mantras, practice self-denial, go on their pilgrimages because they think it makes them righteous before God. Granted, they pursue nirvana and not God, and it's through enlightenment, not righteousness, but it's, it's the same, and the mechanism behind all of these systems are the same, and it's self. It's all about self. What can you do? Now, hopefully you understand that Christianity alone is different. Christianity is unique in understanding that there is nothing you can do to make you right or righteous before God. Literally nothing. And this is part of the uniqueness of the gospel. It's not about what you can do, but what about has been done for you through Christ. See, you do need to be perfectly righteous. Only you are far from perfectly righteous, and you can't get there on your own. You can't be that. And that's why God made provision for you, for righteousness, through Christ. It comes by, therefore, his grace, gift through your faith. Every world system can be summed up with one word, and that is works, whereas the true gospel alone can be summed up by grace. Now, all this being the case, though, it's it's amazing how quickly even supposed Christians can revert to a system of works. Some essentially downgrade the gospel to just another works-based religion of the world. In a way, this is expected because Jesus said there would always be tares among the wheat, false believers among true believers. Today, we would call these false Christians cultural Christians. They're Christians by name. They call themselves Christians, but they don't know the gospel. And they live as if Christianity is just another religion of the world. It's just their religion. Why are they Christians? Well, because they think they they do Christian things. They say Christian things. They go to church, they pray, they don't drink, they give to the poor, they volunteer, they even read their Bible. They're nice people. That makes them a Christian, right? They do these things because it thinks it makes them righteous before God. Now, quickly, Christians even can revert to a self-righteousness before God, a system of, of dead works. Let's take as a good example of this the blue laws in America. You ever heard of these? If you don't know what the blue laws are, it's just a series of laws that were passed in America's history to ban certain activities on Sundays for religious reasons. It was, you know, back in the day, Christians who made these laws and imposed them on the nation because they wanted to uphold Sunday as as the Lord's Day. It's the new Sabbath. It's a day of rest, and and people shouldn't be doing these things on, on such a holy day. It became this very ceremonial day. So start with the Puritans very early on. They made a whole bunch of blue laws prohibiting cooking, shaving, sweeping on Sunday. You couldn't do anything. You couldn't cut your hair on Sunday. You couldn't wear jewelry on Sunday. 
Now, most of the nation didn't buy into that extreme. But pretty much everywhere across, across the nation, businesses were closed on Sunday. And early on, that was by law. Now, a lot of these blue laws didn't last long in America's history, but some of them did. In most states, the, the sale of alcohol was banned on Sundays. And that's still true in many states, at least Sunday mornings. Let me ask, well, why, why would they ban alcohol on Sunday mornings? Well, their reasoning was, well, you should be going to church on Sunday mornings, or at the very least, you shouldn't be drinking on Sunday mornings. It's this very ceremonial time. Also, the sale of cars was prohibited by on Sundays by law. And that's still a law in 13 states. You cannot buy a car on Sunday. It's one of the blue laws. I guess car dealers were so associated with deceit that people wanted them to only lie to people on six days a week <laughs> instead of seven days a week. And today, most of the blue laws have been repealed. But it just shows you how even Christians, well-meaning Christians, can devolve into works. These laws were created to force people to observe the Lord's Day, to attend church, that was some of their intent, to refrain from wickedness. If this is done with religious intent, it's just legalism because you can't regulate righteousness. All of these laws, they did nothing to move America's righteousness meter. America didn't become more righteous because of these laws. They didn't change anyone. They didn't change the heart. Just for example, take banning alcohol on Sunday. And by no means do I you know, advocate drinking. Some of these laws aren't necessarily bad in themselves. But look, what does it accomplish to ban the sale of alcohol on, on Sunday morning? You know, if, if people obey your law, you're going to think they're righteous, but they're not. If people disobey your law, you're going to think they're unrighteous. They are, but for a different reason. You're just concerned that they broke your, your law. Overall, this law does nothing to change their heart. All it does is drive up alcohol sales on Saturday night. That's all it does. People are still going to do what their heart wants to do. And so you see how futile this is? Rules and regulations are not the answer to man's sin problem. But that's the allure of legalism. It's just a bunch of unrighteous people. We're all unrighteous. It's a bunch of unrighteous people coming together, making a list of rules which they can keep. And in so doing, it makes them feel very righteous. I can do this. That's just how all religion works. It's a shame, though, when Christians act this way because it's supposed to be different. And the passage we have before us today speaks to this issue. We find a striking parallel between today's cultural Christians and the Pharisees. So the Pharisees, they were the Jewish religious leaders. They should have known better. They're supposed to be the, the people of God. But they had their own blue laws, so to speak, and that's all they cared about, their, their set of rules and regulations. They, too, heavily regulated righteousness way beyond what God said in his own word. Of course, the Pharisees made sure that all of their own laws were attainable. That way, if they committed, they could, they could do it and appear. They could feel very righteous. But the rest of the people weren't willing to live so extremely, well, they were just left condemned as unrighteous sinners. And so with the system so warped like this and so wicked, it's, you really should come as no surprise to you to find that Jesus himself confronts it and condemns it at just about every turn. Sometimes Jesus exposed that the fundamental flaw behind the system of trying to be righteous. He says, look, 
you can't be righteous enough. You can make all the laws you want. You can't be righteous enough. Sermon on the Mount was a big time when he confronted the people over this. And he said to them, Matthew 5, verse 20, he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And to them, that just blew them away. Wait, we have to be more righteous than the Pharisees? That's not even possible. How how can that be done? And that's his point, by the way. It's not possible. It can't be done. That's why Jesus concluded part of that message. He said this in Matthew 5.48, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's saying, look, forget your blue laws. Forget forget your laws. You've got God's law to worry about, and you, you don't even come close. Mankind, we like to lower the standard, lower the bar to some attainable level to make us feel good. But Jesus is reminding the people, hey, not so fast. The bar is still up up here at perfection, at God's own perfection. And you you don't come close. And when you realize that, only when you actually get that do you become desperate and you realize, wow, I need some help here. I, I need Jesus to make me perfect, to achieve that righteousness for me. And so we see Jesus often confronting the system, the system of, of righteousness, false righteousness. And then sometimes he also confronts the Pharisees head on and tackles their hypocrisy because even at their own game, they fell short. Even at their own system, they were just hypocrites. And this is what we find again in our passage in Mark chapter 2 and Mark chapter 3. We've mentioned this several times now, but in Mark, starting in chapter 2, we see these five episodes describing the, the rising opposition to Jesus. Chapter 1, his ministry going great, everyone loves him. Chapter 2, we start to see this opposition to Jesus, to his, his works, coming from the religious leaders. We've already studied the first three of these episodes. Today, we're looking at four and five together, the last two combining into one, because both of them deal with these controversies over the Sabbath. Regarding the Pharisees, Jesus, he didn't play by the rules. He didn't buy into their system. He didn't do what they said he should do. And so, to their, in their eyes, Jesus and his disciples were unrighteous. They thought he was unrighteous, but not so fast. Jesus is not unrighteous. He is perfectly righteous. They were the unrighteous ones. They were hypocritical legalists, and it's time for them to be exposed for who they really are. Now, this, in these final two episodes, we really see Jesus turn the tables and, and show them their own folly, their own hypocrisy, and, and really take them head on. At the same time, Jesus also wants others to know what true right living looks like. Jesus was not a legalist, but that also didn't mean he was against all lawful living. Just because he freed us from the burden of the law doesn't mean we're free from right living. We are still to live rightly before God. And he came showing us what that right living actually looks like. There is still a right thing to do. We find this instruction invaluable. So we have much to cover today. We just want to dive in. We have two passages to get through. And so we're going to find from these two contrasts between the way of Jesus and the way of the world. Two contrasts between the way of Jesus and the way of the world. And we'll start with this. Contrast number one. Blessing versus 
burden. Blessing versus burden. Look at verse 23 of Mark 2. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. So in this episode number four, we find ourselves on a random Sabbath. We don't know when, which one. Which, remember, that was Saturday for the Jews. Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field. It was ripe, it was ready for harvest, which means we're somewhere between mid-April to mid-June. This is after Passover. And as they're walking along, they just grab a little snack. This is your, this is your ancient fast food. This is as close you're going to get. As a common practice while walking, you, you grab a head of grain, you crush it between your fingers, you separate the husk and the chaff, and you get to that little wheat kernel, and that's the edible part, and you, you eat. In Deuteronomy, actually, God allowed the people to do, it's called gleaning, to glean from a neighbor's field. This was, this was okay. Now, just as a quick side note, if, if by chance you're using the old King James version of the Bible, you're going to get a, an entirely different picture here because instead of the word grain field, it has the word corn field, and they were husking ears of corn. And have you ever heard of corn in the ancient Middle East? I hope not. Because the Western world didn't even know that corn or Indian maize existed until the discovery of the New World. Corn did not even exist back then, so why does the King James have corn? Well, there there is actually a pretty funny reason. When the King James Version was written, the English word corn meant grain. And it's not talking about maize, you know, Indian maize, what we call corn today, but it is actually still talking about grain. So if you have the King James Version... The meaning is still the same. It's still a grain field. It's just that now our word for corn has become a different thing than when it was written in the 1600s. Anyway, just want to throw that out there. In case you have the King James, you're going to be very confused. But now you understand. Anyway, moving on to verse 24. They're walking. They're eating from the field. Verse 24. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? If you've ever read George Orwell's novel, 1984, then you know of the Thought Police. You've heard of the Thought Police. There were these these government agents, and they were seemingly omnipresent, always there, always watching, trying to get in your mind, read your thoughts, see if, if if you're for the government party or against it. And the Pharisees, they're kind of like that. They're like the religious police. They seem to be always around, always watching to see who's breaking their religious laws. Here they take issue with the Sabbath observance by the disciples of Jesus or the lack thereof. And this really riled them up. You know, eating, fasting, that's one thing. But for these religious Orthodox Jews, you you don't mess with their Sabbath. You don't mess with their Sabbath. This is the one thing that really separated them from the world. They they clung to Sabbath. You, You don't mess with Sabbath. Now, observing Sabbath was a biblical practice. This was the fourth of the Ten Commandments, commanded by God to observe the Sabbath, to be a day of rest, a day which you don't work. You don't work, your children are not to work, your servants are not to work, even your animals are not to work, just everyone rests. Back then, there was no such thing as a weekend. Everyone worked seven days a week. 
So having a day of rest, that, that's a really nice thing. That's a very unique thing as well. The other countries, the other nations didn't do this. And so who's not going to like a day of rest? I mean, that, that's a good command. I, I can do that. But over time, this, this very simple command became very complicated. It became very involved. And here's how things change. Just to give you some insight into the mind of the Pharisees, see how these things change, how this works. You had these very religious people, and they looked at God's law, and they said this, you know, we don't want to be like our, our unrighteous, uh, idolatrous forefathers who, who left God. We, don't, we want to keep God's law. In fact, we don't even want to come close to transgressing the law. And so they reasoned, what's the best way to keep yourself from even coming close to violating God's law? And they reason the answer is, well, you build a fence around it. Build a fence around the law and you won't even come close to violating it. And so they made this huge list of rules to function like a fence. And that would keep them from even coming close to sin. You know, this may not sound like a bad idea to you. We have guardrails at the Grand Canyon for a good reason. I mean, here's this really big cliff. And if you fall off, you're going to die. So a fence keeping you back sounds like a good idea. And so, spiritually, if you don't want to fall off the cliff into sin, what's wrong with the fence? That sounds reasonable, right? But, but really not so much. You see, they fail to realize that no fence is strong enough to keep you from sin. Not going to work. Nothing will keep you from sin. Even if you fenced yourself in on all four sides, you're still going to sin. It doesn't keep you from sin. And so offense, rules and regulations, there's really no solution to the sin problem. And furthermore, their simple guidelines quickly turned into a new standard of righteousness. Their man-made laws became equivalent to God's laws, as if they had come from God himself. And this is the definition of legalism. Their law became like God's law, and this placed a huge burden on the people. And so you had something like the Sabbath, which was supposed to be just a blessing for the people, and it became what? A burden. It became a huge burden for the people. Their laws also became a tool of control. You see, the ones who were willing to commit and live by these these strict laws, like the Pharisees, Because of that, they they took this phony moral high ground. They were the righteous ones who lived according to these man-made rules. And so because of this phony moral high ground, they were able to exert their rule over the people and just rule them by guilt. And like, you don't even keep the law. How can you tell me what to do? And so they became the rulers. Do you see how warped that is? How wrong that is? But that's religion. That's every religion. That They all do the same thing. You want to get to the top of religion, you just commit to the system. And you can rule by, by guilt. Where God left man free, they put man in chains. And very quickly, their system turned into a form of slavery. Religious life lost all of its joy. It became a life of fear. And religious life lost all of its blessing. It just became a burden. And that, that today, that's the same thing, every religion of the world. Now, Mark 2, we're dealing with specifically with one law, and that's the Sabbath. God command, God's command was very simple. Don't work, just rest. Basically, that's it. 
But they said, we've got to build a fence around this command. So the Jews, they added 39 categories of prohibited works on the Sabbath. And each category had its own list of what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. Let me just give you some examples of what they said qualified as work on Sabbath, thereby being prohibited. Just to show you how crazy this is. On Sabbath, cooking is not allowed, nor baking, nor frying, nor any method of, of applying heat to prepare food. You could, you could assemble a salad, that was okay, but you couldn't cut the fruit or vegetable, and you couldn't apply heat, you couldn't cook the fruit or vegetable. Both tying and untying counted as work. So if you're walking along and your sandals came unlaced, you're stuck. Until sundown, you can't do anything. One category of Sabbath violation was labeled sorting and purification. So in this category, filtering drinking water and picking out the bones from a fish, that counted as work. You couldn't do it. Also, this one's kind of crazy, a little strange as well. Let's say you have a bowl of, of peanuts mixed with raisins. And it's kind of strange, right? But just picture a bowl of peanuts mixed with raisins. And you only want the raisins. That's all you want to eat. And so if you were to remove the peanuts from the bowl, leaving behind, so to speak, a purified bowl of raisins, that, that's work. That, that's work of purification. You can't do that. That is prohibited. However, if you just picked out the raisins one by one and ate them, and you just left behind the undesired peanuts, well, that's okay. You can do that. What? You cannot start a fire on the Sabbath. You cannot extinguish a fire on the Sabbath. So if your house starts to burn down by accident, you cannot stop it. Truly. Even if you incur great property damage, you cannot put out a fire. The only exception is if a life is at risk. But, I mean, look, it's crazy enough as it is. And the list goes on. That's just a few of hundreds of prohibitions. And so when the Pharisees in our text are objecting to Jesus and his disciples doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath, they don't have in mind really the fourth of the Ten Commandments. They're talking about all of this man-made rules and regulations. And to them, the actions of the, of the disciples violated several commands. When the disciples plucked a head of grain, that was like reaping. When they rubbed the grain in their fingers, that was like threshing. And when they blew away the chaff, that was like winnowing. And so they were violating several of their Sabbath commands. At least according to them, Jesus didn't buy into any of this. He didn't buy into their system. And so now he responds. Verse 25. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need? And he and his companions became hungry. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest. And he ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Here Jesus appeals to a scene from the Old Testament to justify his disciples. And this is a passage they should have known. And he asked them, have you never read what David did? I mean, they were, they were supposed to be the religious experts. They should know this. They did know this, but they, of course, missed the meaning of, of God's word at every turn. This takes us back to the time of David in 1 Samuel 21. Saul was the acting king, but God had removed him as the true king. He had anointed David as the true king. 
But still, Saul was in power. He was trying to kill David. So David and a few men fled, ran for their lives. They come to the city called Nob, a city of priests. David and his men had no supplies on hand. They had no food. They had no provisions. They didn't have swords. They just ran away. And so they really need help. They need some food. But no food was available for them in this entire city. The only bread around was the consecrated bread in the temple. In the tabernacle, in the holy place, there was this golden table. And on the table, there were 12 loaves of bread, symbolizing, of course, the 12 tribes of Israel. It's called the bread of the presence. And it symbolized God's presence with his people. It was like the 12 tribes were always table fellowshipping with God. And on the Sabbath, the old bread was eaten by the priests, and the new bread was placed in, in, in its place. The law stated that this bread was not for everyone. It was only for the priests. They were the only ones who could eat this. So David shows up. He's with his men. They're in great need. They're starving. They need some bread. But the only bread around, they're not allowed to eat. Now, Ahimelech was priest during this time. Later on, Saul would actually slay every single priest in this city. He would kill them all in this city because they helped David. But Ahimelech had a son named Abiathar, and Abiathar was the lone survivor of this slaughter. He ran away. He joined David. He became the high priest under David's entire reign. And Abiathar was such a dominant figure that the whole reign of David was also known as the time of Abiathar's priesthood. And so that's why, just so you know, Mark mentions Abiathar in our passage. This whole time was considered the time of Abiathar. But anyway, Ahimelech the priest, he recognizes the need of the moment. As David is before him, he realizes the need to preserve life outweighed the need to preserve a ceremony. David and the priest both understood what good is it to keep a ritual alive while people die? What good is that? What, what is more important, the life of a tradition or the life of a person? And the answer is always the same. People matter. Life matters more than symbols. There are many biblical symbols and ceremonies, but they should never take precedence over human life. Now hopefully you can see why Jesus brings this up. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. I mean, here was David, and he was allowed by a priest to violate God's ceremonial law in order to preserve life. So how much more so should the disciples be allowed by Jesus to violate man-made ceremonial law in order to preserve life? Remember, these Sabbath laws, they weren't even God-given. They were man-made. And so all the more so, this should be readily set aside when it comes to preserving life, promoting life, doing good. Jesus stands on firm ground here. And now he strengthens and reinforces his point. Look at verse 27. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. What was God's intended purpose for the Sabbath after all? It was to be a blessing for the people, a time of rest. Keep them from wearing out, wearing out their bodies, wearing out their servants, wearing out their animals, wearing out their fields. 
If you've ever worked hard physically, you know rest is a blessing. And also the Sabbath was a golden opportunity for the people to lift their thoughts to higher things. If you've ever labored really hard physically, you know it takes everything out of you, physically and mentally. When you're done, you just want to go home and just veg out, rest. Not think, not do anything, just just rest, just sleep. Back then, life was so rigorous. Every day was just work. Daily activities, work. You didn't have time or energy to stop, think, reflect, ponder. You didn't have energy for that. So if you had an entire day set aside for rest, just think what that would do, not just physically, but also mentally. Freeing you up to just think about God. You don't have to worry about the burden of laboring in the field, but you can rest and remember God. And in a world where everyone works seven days a week, that was a real blessing. Having a day off was a real blessing. But the Pharisees changed the Sabbath from a blessing to a burden. It became a day of fear. You can't do this. You can't do that. You were constantly worried that you might break some minutia of the law. And if you did, you would feel guilty as if you had broken God's law. You were always scared that the religious police would be there. They would catch you. And if they did, you would be condemned. You would be ostracized as a sinner. And as you can see, they made man a slave of the Sabbath. The contrast, I hope, is very clear. And this is our first contrast, blessing versus burden. And which do you think Jesus brings? At a later time, he outright rebuked the Pharisees. He said this, Matthew 23, verse 4. Speaking of them, he says, They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. In contrast, Jesus said this of himself, Matthew 11, verse 28. He said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Verse 30, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you see the contrast? It's really clear. I I know several unbelievers, they think, you know, the Christian life is such a burden. I mean, you can't get drunk, you can't sleep around, you can't go party, you can't do whatever you want. I mean, what a drag. But true believers know the Christian life, it's burden-free. That There are no burdens anymore. You are finally free from the burden of the law and the burden of, of slavery to sin being judged for your deeds, and living as if it's up to your works, that's the real burden. That's the real burden. Jesus finishes off this passage with the the bombshell statement, verse 28 now. He says, So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. You know, technically when David took that bread, he was king in God's eyes. He was the anointed king. So he had a special authority to take that bread. And all the more so, Jesus shows he has all authority. How can they dare impose their petty, man-made Sabbath regulations on him? He is the Lord of the Sabbath. This is none other than a claim of divinity. 
Jesus never cast the law aside. He did not come to violate the law. He came to fulfill the law. But he is the one with the authority to determine what is really unlawful on the Sabbath. I mean, he is God. He made the Sabbath. It is his day. It's the Lord's day. And so this clash, in reality, it's not really over the rules of the Sabbath, but over who rules the Sabbath. Did you catch that? Their battle, it's really not over the rules of the Sabbath, but over who rules the Sabbath. Jesus asserts his divine authority over the Pharisees. He's fully able to set aside their petty regulations because they completely missed the intent of the law. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, and he comes to give people an even greater blessing, an even greater time of rest, an eternal Sabbath, Hebrews 4.9. He comes to bring blessing and rest forever. This is blessing versus burden. It's the contrast between the way of Jesus and the way of the world, every way of the world. There's a second contrast here. We want to move right into this comes from a second text right after. These two passages come together in all three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptics, both dealing with a clash over the Sabbath. This time, we're going to see Jesus nail them for missing the intent of the law. Not only did they seek burden over blessing, but they promoted death over life. That's our second contrast. It's a shorter passage, actually, but Mark chapter 3, 1 through 6. Contrast number 2. We see life versus death. Contrast number two now, life versus death. So it won't take long, but let's enter chapter three and look at verse one. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Luke tells us this takes place on another Sabbath, perhaps the following week, we don't know. This time Jesus is in a synagogue and there's a man there who has a a withered hand. Luke tells us it was his right hand. Tradition says this guy was a stonemason, his hand was crushed by a heavy stone, but there's really no way to know that for sure. All we know is his right hand was just somehow destroyed, crippled, withered. But right on cue we see the religious police, they're at it again. They're waiting, they're watching Jesus to see if he's going to break their Sabbath laws. Only Matthew tells us they actually were trying to set Jesus up. And they ask Jesus the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? The really sad part here is that by this time, they already know Jesus can heal. It's granted, it's a given point. They already know he has the supernatural power to heal people. But instead of being blown away by that, and convicted by that, and seeing him as the true, the divine Messiah, they just use his ability to heal as a trap, as a way to trap him on the Sabbath. And you can see again, just the blindness, the hardness of heart. It's it's amazing. Again, according to their Sabbath laws, it is unlawful to heal on the Sabbath. You can't heal someone on the Sabbath, even just practically. If a person was injured on the Sabbath, nothing could be done. If you had a broken bone on the Sabbath, you could not even set it until sundown. The only exception was if a life was in danger, but otherwise you just sit there and you suffer until sundown. 
So on this Saturday, the Pharisees all knew this man with the withered hand was present and Jesus was there and he's known for healing people like this. But this man, his life was not in danger. So he, it was unlawful to heal him on that Sabbath. If they could just get Jesus to heal him though, they would catch him red-handed in front of all the people doing that which was unlawful on the Sabbath. This was their setup. Jesus takes the bait on purpose, but he turns the tables on them. It doesn't end like they think. Verse 3. He said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. Here Jesus brings this crippled man up front. He's probably thinking to myself, what did I get myself into this morning? But Jesus wants him where everyone can see him. He's not trying to work in secret. He doesn't want this hidden. He wants this to be a public healing and a public rebuke. You know, So far, if you've noticed, in these five episodes, they all begin the same with the Pharisees questioning Jesus. They have these kind of witch hunt-like questions. And they all begin the same. Only now... This last episode, number five, Jesus turns the tables and he does the questioning. He questions them. This question really puts them in their place. He asks, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill? Jesus deliberately uses their word for lawful, but he's elevating this from a legal problem to a moral problem. This is not just a problem of the law. This is an ethical issue. It's not a matter of keeping a list of laws. It's about what is the right thing to do? What is right? What is wrong here? Doing good? We're doing harm. Is promoting life ever the wrong thing to do? And the answer is no. Something morally good does not become morally evil just because it is done on the Sabbath. That is never the case. They would actually have this man come back the next day if he wanted to be healed. But doing good is not limited to certain days. You may have fallen into this trap yourself. Let me just imagine, pretend it's Sunday morning, you're getting ready for church, and it looks like you're finally going to be there on time. And it's a miracle, because you're always late. So you head out the door, you're going to make it. You see your neighbor. It's this nice older lady. She's not a Christian, but you've been witnessing to her for a long time. She just come back from the market. She's got both arms full of groceries. As she heads up the stairs, though, to her front door, she stumbles a little bit, and then she drops all of the groceries. They just all spill and splatter down the stairs. She's clearly flustered and frustrated by her mistake and just really upset. She looks to you and she says, can you, just, can you lend a hand? Can you help me here? So what do you do? You smile back at her and you say, well, I would love to, but, you know, really, I don't want to be late for church. So you get in your car and you drive off. <laughs> do you see a problem with this? I hope you do. I trust that you do. I mean, what good is it for you to go to church and learn about doing right when you never do it? I mean, do you really think that God exempts you from doing good because you've got to get to church on time? Granted, you should be at church on time, but I think you get the deal, right? It's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty much a no-brainer situation. 
And likewise, the question Jesus asked the Pharisees was a no-brainer. Everyone knew the right answer here. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Of course. I mean, it's obvious. Only the rest of the people, they were too fearful to confront the Pharisees on their ridiculous laws. But Jesus was not. Matthew records another question that Jesus asks here. It's Matthew 12, 11. He says, What man is there who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And Jesus just nails their hypocrisy here. I mean, how much work does it take to lift a sheep out of a pit? I've never done it, but I imagine a lot. You're probably going to work up a sweat. When it comes to work, that's work. But they would still do it, even on the Sabbath. Every single one of them, hands down, no questions asked, they would do it. Because that sheep, it was like their wealth. It was part of their livelihood. They would do it. That's not even wrong, though. Jesus doesn't say that's wrong. But the point is, this man and his suffering are more important than sheep. And it was lawful. It was good for Jesus to heal him, even on the Sabbath. The conclusion was obvious. Their practices and their religion was false. They were in the wrong, and everyone knew it. But the result was silence. They just respond with silence. This is always the response of prideful people who know they're wrong. People will argue to defend themselves as long as they can. But when they're finally backed up into a corner, they just get quiet. That's all they can do. Instead of humbling themselves and repenting, they just get quiet. They know they're wrong, but they will not admit it. And they will not change. So they just sit there, they fume in silence. And that's what they were doing. They were steaming. So, verse 5. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. This is one of the few times where we see Jesus express anger. But when he does, it's always appropriate. Our anger is probably 99.9% of the time an unrighteous anger. It is driven by our own selfish motives and desires. But Christ always shows a righteous anger. It's driven by one thing, and that's the glory of God. But here this anger doesn't last. It quickly turns into a sadness, a godly grief. Because they're just so lost. They were just so blind. They couldn't see. It wasn't an excuse for them, but it it does give rise to, to just sadness. It's just sad. For their hearts were hardened. Hardness of heart is a heart condition worse than heart disease or a stroke because it can lead to an eternal death. The Bible speaks of this condition as being the opposite of humility. A person who is hardened, they're not teachable. They're cut off. Nothing gets through. You can't reason with them. They won't listen to anything you have to say. They're set in their ways. It doesn't matter how illogical, how unreasonable. They're just, they won't listen. They would rather oppose God to his face than admit they're wrong and change. Now, of course, we all once were hardened. And thankfully, God's grace can penetrate that. But here, 
for now, for these Pharisees, it was a big problem spiritually because if you remember a few weeks ago, we identified one of the necessary conditions for salvation. It's really simple. It's brokenness. You have to be broken over your sin. You have to be humbled over your unrighteousness. These Pharisees, though, at least at the time, they were still hardened. They were the exact opposite. And so, at least for now, there was no helping them. Jesus turns his attention toward the man with the withered hand, and he heals him. His hand was just stretched out for all to see, and it was instantly restored. This healing, of course, is amazing, miraculous. What's also amazing is that Jesus did this without actually violating their their petty Sabbath regulations. He used no medicine, no bandages, no work was done. He didn't even touch the guy. All he did was say, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was healed. That's it. Yet the Pharisees knew this was a rebuke to them. They were humiliated by Jesus in front of all the people. And instead of being humbled by this divine power, they storm out. And they begin now to conspire to kill him. We see the Herodians enter the picture. Normally, the Pharisees hated the Herodians. The Herodians were Jews who supported the Herods. And like King Herod, Herod Antipas, that was the guy who had John the Baptist arrested and later killed. The Pharisees hated such Rome-loving, traitorous Jews. But as the saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The Herodians wanted the status quo, so people like John the Baptist and Jesus had to go. And the Pharisees found themselves with an unlikely ally. You just got to see this. The hypocrisy and the irony here, it's just so unmistakable. For the Pharisees, although they were not willing to eat with sinners, I guess they had no problem conspiring to kill with sinners. And although they found it completely unacceptable to heal on the Sabbath, they found it perfectly fine to conspire to murder on the Sabbath. Do you see that irony? They said it was unlawful to heal on the Sabbath, but they found it perfectly acceptable to go out and conspire to kill on the Sabbath. Jesus asked them earlier, is it lawful to save a life or to kill on the Sabbath? And by their actions, they give their answer. It is lawful to kill on the Sabbath. They plotted to kill the Lord of the Sabbath on the Sabbath. But again, this is what you get with man's ways. They all lead to death. They promoted death in more ways than one. They valued rituals over people, traditions over mercy, ceremonies over compassion. They were the party, not of righteousness, they were the party of death. The contrast with Jesus is clear. And the lesson, I hope, is clear as well. Jesus brings life. The ways of man, they all lead to death. But the way of Jesus alone leads to life, eternal life. He takes our burdens. He gives us blessings instead. He takes our death. He gives us life in return. Sin is the ultimate burden. It brings the ultimate penalty of death, eternal death, that Christ bore that burden on the cross. He paid for our sins. He conquered death by rising from the dead and now offers you life, eternal life, not by works, but by grace through your faith in him. 
This is his way. It's a way of it's a way of grace. It's a way of no burden. His burden is light. His yoke is easy. It's a it's a way of rest. And so the way of Jesus is good. Do, do you see that? Do you really believe that the way of Jesus is is good? That that's the good way. Or are, are you still blind, thinking that man's ways are better? Do you really think that living in sin is the better way? Do you really think that doing whatever is right in your own eyes, it's going to end well for you? That's going to work out. Do you even think trying really hard to be a good person will help you escape judgment? Again, man's ways all lead to the same place, and that is death. But don't miss the way of life because of your pride. Don't let your heart be hardened. Self-reliance and self-righteousness are the great enemies of of the gospel. I have to say, this is becoming a familiar lesson in Mark, but that's okay because we need this often. God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So be humble. Recognize your sin, your brokenness. Admit your need to God. Go to him and he will greet you with mercy and grace. Turn to Jesus in faith. Do this daily. Confess this daily, your need for him. He'll change your heart. He'll change your life. He will free you, finally, from the burden of man's ways. And he will invite you into the blessing of God's way. Let's pray together. Gracious God in heaven, you are indeed a gracious God. To do this for us. Lord, once we all subscribe to the ways of man, we all once were those who lived by ourselves, for ourselves, according to our own way, seeking some way to find satisfaction in life, thinking we could get to you by our own self, by our own works, our own righteousness. How lost, how hardened we all once were. But you confronted us with the Savior and you broke our bonds. You lifted our blinds and you showed us the light of Christ. The burden was lifted from our shoulders. The weight of sin finally gone. Our souls were being crushed to death, but now we're free. Christian life, it is the way. There are no burdens here. Although we still live rightly before you, that is now a joy. It is a blessing because we want to honor our Savior. I pray everyone in here has that conviction, and if not, that you would convict their hearts. Lord, there may be in here a few hardened hearts. And only you can speak grace into them. Only you can break that hardening. I pray you do that work. Use the word that they have heard this morning and maybe even read to confront them, to change them, to challenge them, to break them down. They see they, they need real change. They need new birth. They need the Savior who brings life instead of death. And for those who have been humbled, may we continually confess our need to you, but then leave with a smile. We have the joy of life, the blessing that comes from the Savior and there's nothing to fear. For us, religious life, whatever you want to call it, it's not, a, it's not a burden anymore. It's a great joy. And so may we come here and leave here joyful that we get to serve our God and live out however many days we have for you and enjoy life to the fullest. We thank you for the life we have. All comes by you and to you be the glory. In your name we pray. Amen.